Welcome to Probably Science. I'm Andy Wood. I'm Jesse Case. I'm Matt Kirshen, and we are joined by a returning guest, friend of the podcast, and I was going to say new author, but re- re- repeated author. Repe- like he's he's all he's yes, authored multiple times now. Recidivism is happening with the writing. Yeah, is that br- br- brand new book mm-hmm. out? Moshe Kasha. How's it going, Moshe? Oh, I'm great. I I think that you've coined a term, repeated author. I think <laughs> yeah. that's what we're called. <laughs> Can I? Uh, no, I don't want to immediately interrupt. But has uh, Matt Moshe? Uh, Matt, have you called him Moshe before? Is that a known nickname? I don't know. It's I a mean, great I th- question, Jesse. Thank you. <laughs> no, you're welcome. I uh, well, no, I feel I've like I have. I feel like I've said that before, and and he hasn't like immediately balked. And that's okay. the rule in society, it's isn't very... it? If you do something and someone doesn't immediately say, "Please don't do that again," then that's fine. That's basically them saying that whatever you did is okay. Well, that's I, the rule in society. I've... I've noticed there's not enough pushback in American culture of British nicknames. Uh, everyone what are British rolls nicknames? The, the British will just give you a nickname, you know? They'll just uh-huh. out of the gate. Well, and, and so will the Australians, but they not... do it differently. Like, I think the Brits, yeah, will, the Brits will shorten and the yeah, Australians will add an O. Yeah, they'll just do a racial slur, right? Exactly. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, you know, if, if you're like, hey, I'm Beverly or whatever, it's immediately like, hey, Bevs. And it's like, well, we're not there yet. You know, but I, I mean, I'm not I, a great uh, test case because uh, my name is so arc- like difficult to pronounce that I will respond to literally anything anyone calls sure. me as long as it's vaguely reminiscent of an M at the front. <laughs> OK. All right. No, has anyone ever gone with kosher masher? Oh, yeah. I get called that constantly. I just, that's like a really a constant thing. Uh, I'm, I'm actually surprised it hasn't come up earlier in the podcast, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, you know what is what is sort of sad is that every I would say six months or so, somebody comments on Instagram calling me motion capture, thinking that they have come up with that, and I just feel <laughs> bad because it is it is the most oft uh, repeated uh, play on my name. So I just right. I don't know how to let them down. And also, you're always walking around in that suit with ping pong balls on it. So. Uh, I know, yeah, the that, green. That's my yeah. thing. That's well, I'm all I mean, me and you did Andy do Circus are. Yeah. Me and Andy Circus are, are very tight. <laughs> yeah, I uh no, I just didn't know if I was I was like is everyone calling him motion? I'm not in the cl- I'm not there yet. You know what I mean? Like we hadn't established Do you want to call like, me that? No, I mean I, I if if that's your thing, I mean I'll do it. You know, I just I thought we were friends and then I got got him my about thing, it. My thing, well my thing is hiring a bunch of men to make love to my wife while I watch. Yeah. No, I no. That's I know my the, thing. If we're talking about my thing, that's really what I would say my thing is. But in terms of nicknames, I'm very open minded. Well, that's how we. That's how we got the motion capture of you jerking off, and that's, that's how we, right. we applied it to those yeah. Pixar. Uh, those for were the, ping pong balls, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I mean we we all know about the Casher Cuck chair, and uh, we've <laughs> all been there. And <laughs> I've been thinking ever since. Um, uh, the rise of the of the extreme right. I've been thinking about how frustrating it must be to be a uh, a, a conservative uh, real cuck. You know, like you're <laughs> you're like a pro Trump, pro America. Yeah, America first. But your thing is that you like to have a bunch of men make love to your wife in front of you, and you're 
that identity is has it been making robbed. love is it making love at that point like well you, I, would, would you guys make love to my wife make sensual what? love i'm gonna let you know why i said making love it's just because i felt uh <laughs> self-conscious about using the phrase fuck your wife uh on a sure. on science podcast <laughs> sure sure um um no i get it yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, do they, do they? Yeah, is it? Is it like that's not your word to use? Right, exactly, that's... exactly. That that's our word. Uh, and, and, and and how dare you? I'm 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 racist. I I hate I hate immigrants. I'm a xenophobe, and I like this kink. And so, I why are you robbing me of my identity just in order to insult our political adversaries? Also, I sure. I would say with, with no real with no data or evidence to back this up but based on pure speculation i would guess that that kink is more prevalent in racist communities because kinks have a tendency to reflect deep-seated fear or anxieties and be uh and and so the idea of someone like a group of black guys having sex Mm. with your with your white wife when you're a white racist is I feel like that's more likely to happen than it is in someone who sees all races as equal. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, this They're is taking really all our bull jobs. They're moving in. They're taking our bull jobs. <laughs> <laughs> they're ramming our wives. And they're <laughs> yeah, just I would like, say that, just that dro- what you just said, Matt, is, is probably science. That is probably science. <laughs> that, is, that is as close to accuracy as we ever get. So listen, you're... They're, it's, and it's also the subject of Moshe's new book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it sure isn't. <laughs> but but there are a bunch of other subcultures, Moshe, that you are involved in. That is, that is by the way, are you aware, I'm sure you're aware of this because there's no way you haven't Googled or checked this stuff because um, you're a human being who lives in the world. But are you aware that there are three books about your life that are on Amazon? Uh, one of them is Casher in the Rye, which came out a few years ago. Great read. Excellent. About your early years. One of them is the brand new book, Subculture Vulture, which we're going to talk about, which has just come out. And then there is also Moshe Kasher, the unauthorized biography, Childhood Addiction and Adulthood at 16 by Adam James Weeks. You've got to be kidding. Whoa. I did not know that. Did you? Is this an AI book? What is this? I, it feels pretty AI. It feels like Adam James Weeks either doesn't exist or has um well no need to out my nom de plume i worked really hard on this uh book about moshe and uh you know but yeah i I, see this i want to i want it bad here i'm you have an unauthorized i just it doesn't it doesn't say the unauthorized biography but i'm just going to assume it was unauthorized even before you said you hadn't heard of it based on the fact that you have written two autobiographies yourself being a professional writer uh but um but he does get off a funny idea it's a funny idea that an AI factory somewhere is trying to draft off the unbelievable success of my book. I mean, <laughs> yeah. We had a difficult enough time selling copies of the book written by the author. Although I will say this, this year, 10 years after it was published, it did well when it came out. But this year, weirdly enough, due to a, t- a viral TikTok from Mayim Bialik, it became a bestseller a decade after oh, that's it came awesome. out. And so... Right now, as my next book is about to uh, come out, or has already come out, depending on when this episode drops, 
I am getting tons and tons of DMs and messages from people who just read the book. It's a very strange experience. Oh, that's pretty 10 cool. Ten years after something happens. Yeah, it's very, very cool. But maybe did, did you get maybe the, that's did, why Adam J. Weeks did it, to be honest. Maybe. Did you, I'm just uh, realizing did you get the, that. Uh, did you get the Coda bump when that came out? Did you get a Coda bump? I was oh, thinking you about where that you do the movie came oh, out. Oh, the movie Coda, right, right. Oh, right. that's where you do coke with a bunch of people with deaf parents? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've done that for sure. Yeah, the old the old sniffing <laughs> sign. We've all been there. Um, sure, the signing gets very aggressive and very egotistical. <laughs> right, actually. it's very fast. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, what is the sign for uh, Bitcoin? <laughs> um, I can't tell you that, but I can tell you the sign for cocaine is exactly what you think it is. <laughs> um, sure. So sure. Ad Adam James Weeks has also published Ron Howard and Clint Howard biography, The Howard Brothers of Journey to Hollywood. That is the, that is the title. The Howard Brothers <laughs> the Howard of Journey Brothers to Hollywood. Of journey. <laughs> That's, mm. That is the grammar. I'm, as starting to get a, I'm starting to get a weird feeling about this. Uh, this Adam James Weeks. And he has also contributed to a, a book about the Incredible Hulk and a book about Robin of, of, Bat, of, of Batman and Robin. Uh -huh. And also the, the Journal the of Presbyterian biography. History. <laughs> the unauthorized biography of the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> yeah. Which, again, the Incredible Hulk has his own books that he's written. Yep. No, yeah, I he, guess my... Hulk smash, you won't like me when I'm angry. It's not easy being green. That's co-authored with Kermit the Frog. Yeah. Uh, if you really want to screw with this guy, you should authorize this. <laughs> I, really, fully really I hereby fully, I hereby I, fully I authorize you. Adam, Adam J. Weeks has now been fully authorized to pen a book called Casher in the Guy. <laughs> I, I, put, I put a link to it in the... On the website, by the way, you can look at it in the on, on, on cast well, there, and you Matt, can see. Matt, have you? Did you look at the rent? Uh, the the Ron and Howard, Ron and Clint Howard it, it, biography is not even spelled correctly on the cover. <laughs> if you give that a look. Oh, I miss. Oh, it isn't. I missed that bit. It's the biography. Oh my god. Biography. <laughs> oh, biography. And also the words. The, the words. The, are, way, the name is also arranged so it looks like it says Ron and Howard Clint. <laughs> so, yep. Yeah. You know, I, I once saw Ron. I once saw Ron Howard in. A, this isn't a great story. I'm going to warn you and your listeners, but I once saw Ron Howard in a parking lot, and it, I had one of these. Living in LA has this um, uh, very common experience where you look at someone and you're like, "Do I know you from the like the Bay Area, from Burning Man, from AA, or are you Brad Pitt?" Like. You never, right. you, when you see someone familiar, you go, and I saw Ron Howard and my brain couldn't compute fast enough uh, who he was, but I knew that I knew him. So I waved at him like a little boy and <laughs> he completely ignored me. Oh, I feel like. And Ron then Howard about an hour later, I was like, that was, that was the subject of Adam J. Weeks' seminal classic. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Well, 50% of the subject. Let's not forget yeah, that Clint that half. Yeah, he shares right. the credit with Clint, the, the two brothers of Journey to Hollywood. Right, and you, you guys have both had the same person as pinned unauthorized biographies. You guys, you know, if you see him again, you could talk about that. The next, <laughs> um, time, you, next time you bump uh, into Oh, Ron. yeah, I'll go, hey, Ron, uh, let's not talk about happy days or your 40-year <laughs> career as a director. Are you familiar with the works of Adam J. Weeks? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, that I, motherfucker, I, I never authorized that biography. 
<laughs> I did not authorize. As an aside, well, I- as an aside about seeing celebrities on the same block that I accidentally saw Ron Howard, I once walked into a restaurant uh, and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was there, and I walked in and we made eye contact, and he gave me a look that I can only describe as, "Hi, yeah, it's me, Arnold Schwarzenegger." This is pretty fucking awesome for you, isn't it? <laughs> right, right. Congrats. Like, it was definitely like, this is the look he gives everybody. This is awesome. He didn't even need to speak. He just kind of looked at me and nodded and I was like, yep, you got it. It's me. <laughs> right. And then you gave him the look you always give celebrities. And then he said, yeah, I'll fuck your wife. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Fine. no, for me. I said, for me, I'm a conservative, so it's more of a racial thing. So that's not going to work for me, Arnold. But having an Austrian would be good. I mean, oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry, Jesse. I stand corrected. That would be that is the ultimate cuck. That's the ultimate. (laughs) I'll do it. I'll fuck her. Should I bring the uniform? No, I have it. I have it. I have the uniform. It's literally Mr. Universe, who is the son of a Nazi. It could not get better. (laughs) Right. I'll fuck your wife. (laughs) Yeah. So look, look, you. um, Let's talk about you. You briefly name-checked some of the subcultures that you have been a part of. That is the subject of this book. But let's go through this because this is maybe some of the stuff that Adam didn't managed to get in his let's face it probably pretty thorough biography yeah uh okay yeah so you start number one child of deaf parents that's that was probably i'm gonna guess that was the first subculture you're a part of on account of that having been the case from birth yes i would say uh that i was born well okay yes because you don't get circumcised and by the way the main thing i want to talk about here on uh, on probably science is the moral imperative for all all baby men to get uh, baby men to get circumcised? I really wanted to discuss <laughs> that. I think that it's it's an absolute rule, and every single male baby needs to be circumcised. I really <laughs> wanted that's really the axe I wanted to grind today. But you don't get circumcised sure. until you're eight days old, and so and that really is the symbolic uh, welcoming that's into the Jewish thing? community. It's like a death. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, yeah, they what, sign closer and closer to your penis until finally you don't have a foreskin anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You really don't want to know what blind parents do. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Yeah, it's 10 days and it's gnarly. I'm so, just saying, uh, I'm just saying that you don't get circumcised until you're 8 days old, so I would say technically I was in the deaf world before I was in the Jewish world maybe. Okay. okay. I get, but they're pretty. They're pretty simultaneous. They're pretty. They're pretty much. The That's same how time. you know you've made a good point on a podcast when all the hosts simultaneously say, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> yes, and period. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so you're you're born. Your parents are deaf. You don't know yet. You, you know because you don't know what that means. Uh, you you get brist up. All right. You're brist out. I'm brist out. I, I we yeah, have a little brist brisket. Out brist out. Yeah. Do you want to sure. know actually the the way that uh, I, I was born into a, a lineage of ultra or like orthodox Hasidic Judaism, like pretty hardcore in a way that I think most people wouldn't really fully understand. And like tunnel digging hardcore. 
Well, that's a very <laughs> unique and very recent facet of the Hasidic yeah. community, by which I mean literally this week. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around the that the particulars of that tunnel. I but just, what I can yeah. say is that Yes. Oh no! I was going to say I I, I read last night a, a a long explainer on Twitter from someone who is a Hubbard member who was explaining roughly what was going on there and like I got but I was thinking when I was reading that oh we, we've got Moshe on the show tomorrow and he was raised partly in ultra orthodox Brooklyn Judaism. But this was ultra ultra like this is more because wasn't it they. Uh... The, the previous rabbi, they thought he was the Messiah, so they were digging a well, tunnel. Well, here's the, here's the complicated thing about Chabad, who are the people that dug the tunnels. Right. Um, right. I, I don't want to lose the thread of my circumcision, so yes. guys, please bring me Sorry. back to that. We'll get you I'm back to it. Tangent. We'll get you back. Okay, great. Um, the thing about Chabad specifically is that they actually, of all the Hasidic Jewish groups, they are by far the least hardcore at least when it comes to um, interfacing with the non-Jewish and non-religious Jewish community. They are uh, the, the diplomats of the Hasidic Jewish world. They do right. outreach into, into the... They're the guys on the corner that come up to you and say, are you Jewish? Have you ever, any of you ever had this experience? Uh, I mean, I have as a, as a Jewish person, both in... I've ha- I think I've had it in America, and I certainly had it when I was in Israel because um, they're all yeah. you go and visit the Wailing Wall they're there and the, yeah the deal is because Judaism is not evangelical outside of the faith like it's almost aggressively non-evangelical it's, it's hard to convert right. in yes but but they are evangelical but, Hasidic... but but they sort of are evangelical within Judaism in that they will try to convert secular or less religious Jews into being more observant is, is that fair to say Moshe? well most it's sort of fair to say most Hasidic Jewish groups specifically, uh, in particular uh, the ones that I grew up in, do not do that. They don't care about non-religious Jews. Uh, I mean, I guess they abstractly care about them, but part of their mission is definitely not to go out into the world, find non-religious Jews and bring them into the fold. Uh, the thing about a, a lot of the Hasidic Jewish groups, uh, that uh, specifically the ones that you know get a lot of... Um, uh, news reports and attention paid to them for like, you know, uh, moving to a, a small community and taking it over or taking over a school board or like th- those are the kinds of groups that generally after the war, um, after the uh, World War II, moved to America kind of in, in pieces. They were, you know, a shattered people and they looked around at the world surrounding them and they thought, OK, we've been living amongst wolves for the last, you know, thousand years and we just almost became completely destroyed. So the way to salvage all that's left of who we are and what we are is to build a wall around the remaining, you know, shards of holiness that still exist in our community and essentially create like little Wakandas inside of the society they live in. So these are the worlds that I grew up in. My father married into a Satmar is one of the sects of Hasidic Judaism. And the other one that that my family's connected to is called New Square. Now, New Square is very interesting in that they are a village in upstate New York and in Hillary Clinton's... um, Senate race, 100% or, 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 or statistically close enough to 100% of the citizens of New Square, New York, voted for Hillary Clinton for Senate. And in an unrelated story, one of their rabbis was, give, uh, was 
offered a pardon by Bill Clinton due to a, Pe- a Pell Grant scandal. So that's the way that they kind of like operate. They're like little rings, like villages that don't ever leave the walls of their little village. In New Square, women don't drive. Um, this is upstate New York. Upstate New York, women do not drive in this community. So like that's the universe that I come from. But there yeah, was right. one. <clears throat> yes, go ahead. No, no, I just said that. No, just and, and I was just saying, and you know, Andy and I, when we uh, lived in Valley Village, it was bananas. It was like but we Valley, had a house. Valley Village got nothing on New Square. Just like, oh no, no, I know, I know. Yeah, I'm yeah. saying because I'm saying like we were even like we were on the block. We were we were the only I'd say Gentile house on the block. Um, so oftentimes, you know, it would just I'd be the only one driving on a Saturday, you know. And everyone would uh, look look angry, you know. Well, like we were yeah, walking I mean, home Friday night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a big part of that is due to the graffiti that you have on the side of your car, the the, the anti-Semitic stuff. Yeah, no, Jesse, no, no, and I, I know. That was a weird choice. <laughs> but, yeah, but you know, you have to establish. They say they say come to town and make a splash. And, yeah, you um, definitely did. Yeah, hurt my with pig's blood. You did. You did <laughs> make a splash with pig's blood. <laughs> So no, I'm not. I'm not comparing sect. it to a community that's like this is the community, you know. Um, so, so that yeah, that's the universe of Hasidic Judaism. Mostly is that they're like we're going to just live just a degree outside of society and make these little villages inside of the dominant society. But there was one sect of Hasidic Judaism the, uh, that went the opposite direction. They said, let's get into the community. Let's be friendly. Let's go interface with, uh, with, uh, other, with other non-Jewish communities. Let's go out into the world and find all the Jews that we can that aren't affiliated and bring them back into the fold. Um, and the reason that they did that is they had a really brilliant, charismatic leader, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who was um, their Rebbe. Every, com- every Hasidic community has a Rebbe, like a king at the top of the hierarchy. And their Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, was truly a one-of-a-kind leader. He was a genius. And he said his main message to the, the Chabad world was if we... Um, if we do one more mitzvah, one more good deed, if one more Jew puts on, the reason they're asking Matt or anybody, are you Jewish in the street, is to try to get you to put on uh, the, the kind of, the morning prayer, they're called tefillin. They're these like, leather, have you ever seen them guys? These like leather straps that you wrap around your arm and put on your head. And, then you, like and then you recite the Shema, S&M. which is a prayer. Yeah. So no, their whole thing. It was, yeah. We were asked, I was asked once. Uh, right, and you said no, been... and then they were like, have a nice day, right? Yeah, but we had a mezuzah on the door right. uh, that had just been there. So it wasn't, it wasn't like off base, but I didn't know what was ha- – my point is I didn't know what was happening, though. Uh, well, because so it wasn't like, for you. It was – they come up r- to right. you, you. They say, no, are you Jewish? You say no, and they go, thank you, have a nice day. And now if right. you say, I yes, was, I no, am Jewish – the interaction goes much, much further. Right. No, it wasn't. It wasn't like a, a problem. I had just never experienced that with Judaism. It was always like Mormons and shit. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So right. I had never. So I was like, I was like, what an interesting question. Almost like I was uh, like, a, you know, uh, taking a census or something. I was just like, no. And that was well, it. here's the thing. If there's one <laughs> thing that Jews find comforting, it's people going door to door knocking and saying, are you Jewish? We love that historically. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's yeah. Kind no, of historically, that's, yeah. Historically, that's been a, a good, yeah. Um, so, so, so Chabad <laughs> started with this charismatic leader, and he said, if we do one more good deed, we don't know the good deed that will bring the Messiah. And so with, with that, two things happened. 
Chabad started to spread around the world. Um, literally, there's Chabad um, uh, offices ev- in every big city in the world. The, the, the biggest Passover meal in the world is held in uh, Kathmandu, Nepal, because there's so many Israeli tourists there. They set up a Chabad in Kathmandu, and there's like a thousand people that come to this Passover Seder. Every city you go to, there will be a Chabad rabbi and uh, trying to get one more good deed done. The other weird thing that happened um, is that because he was saying, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, you know, one more deed and the Messiah will reveal himself, they very quickly started to think, wait a minute, it's you, isn't it? You're the guy. You're waiting, you're waiting for us to do the good deed so you can reveal yourself as the Messiah. And, and then uh, Menachem Mendel Schneerson did an interesting thing, which is he did not say, no, I'm not the Messiah. Now, whether he was uh, thought he was the Messiah or he just wanted more good deeds to get done and thought he could use that, I don't think anybody really knows. But then a thing that you will not believe happened. He got very old and he died. And the Messiah mm. is not supposed to die. That's a big thing. Uh, sure. you know, key ingredient, I'd say. It's a key ingredient. The Messiah <laughs> is not supposed to die. There's another religion that says he did. And we have had some issues with that religion over the years. So, <laughs> sure. so the community kind of split very quickly, had a crisis of faith because their whole mission was to, uh, was to bring about this guy's revelation of himself as the Messiah, and now he's dead. And so uh, a large portion of that community thought to themselves, wait a minute, what if he's not dead? What if he is hiding and he's going to come back from the dead and reveal himself to be the Messiah? Does this sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> right, sure. sure. Elvis, yes. Elvis <laughs> yes, <has>. Elvis, that's <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. George correct. Carlin. <laughs> right. So, so now, we, now we have a very tricky situation in the Hasidic world, which is that the main infrastructure of Orthodox Judaism around the world, the ones that have the kosher butchers and the, the synagogues and they do the circumcisions and they, they conduct all the Orthodox Jewish life around the world, is now being uh, run by at least half of the people who think that the Messiah is still walking around in the world and is going to re-reveal himself. It created this like massive crisis of faith in the entire Orthodox world, which is... Um, what are we going to do about these Messiah nuts, right? Um, and over time, very slowly, uh, the, 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 the demographic of people in that world that still think he's the Messiah got smaller, but not small, but smaller and smaller. And I think we are finding out this week they got more and more hardcore. And this week, for reasons I still don't quite understand, they built a tunnel into their main synagogue and have been camping out in it. And there were near riots in uh, the main synagogue. So at this, this is, I, I put a link to this thread mm. explainer and we'll put it in the show notes as well. Um, it's a long, we don't, it's, it's far too long to go through in this show. It's, it's about sort of 30 or so tweets long. But the gist of it, of what I remember, is there is literally, so the building where the synagogue is, is attached to... 770. There we go. It's called yep. 770. Yeah. And, and I've and been there, by the way. I've been to 770. My <laughs> dad took me on a field trip to 770 to meet the Messiah himself, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, and he gave me a dollar. Oh. All right. Uh, what Did you keep it? Did you spend it? What did you do with that dollar? I guess I wish I had it. I, um, I, that was his thing. He, you would line up for hours to see him. He would give you a blessing and then he would give you a dollar. I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, you can insert anti-Semitic joke here, but that was his ritual. <laughs> All right. 
I mean, this is a uh, so mm. so. My understanding from the thread is there is yeah. a literal turf war over the ownership of that space, and the the hardcore few who you've been talking about, um, this sort of hardcore group, have been literally digging their way into the into the space from a next door place, and then they found out about it, and so they brought in cement trucks to fill in the holes and stop and stop it, like the main Hubbard people. So they broke, mm-hmm. they built, brought in cement trucks, and this group basically attacked the cement trucks and disabled them, and that's when the police were called. And the police came in, and this group scattered, and part of the and so the video you saw of the guy climbing up through the drain and running away, that was basically them running away from the police who were called after they tried to dismantle the cement truck that was brought in to fill fill the hole. So that that's well, what's been that going was on. it's. A- it's also the origin story of the Hasidic mutant ninja turtles. I'm not sure anyone <laughs> yeah. knows that. Right. It's no, the, but the, wait, the, the secret of the ooze. <laughs> That's right. The of ooze the Jews. is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there it is. There yeah. it is. If we eat, if we eat one more pizza, the Messiah will reveal himself. But, here, but here's I the part the, I don't understand, yeah. Matt. I when, get when it. When people say I, radical, we mean it in a cool way. Right? We're a very radical. Group. Yeah, they're rat, radical Jews. Look at them. They're karate chopping and skateboarding. Yeah, but cowabunga. I, I don't get the part. I don't get. I get every detail of the story, but I don't still understand why the why the tunnel what was uh, the tunnel for what was it is it does it have something to do and and you'll have to f- forgive me for knowing nothing about any of this but for instance our andy and i's old neighborhood there was a thread like a literal thread going around the whole thing yeah, no this isn't that yeah so it, 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 it's this, not, this no, wasn't it's to not connect that. domiciles like it wasn't no it wasn't like a does that make sense i mean it's it, called I'm just asking, like yeah, okay. no, it's not that. I mean, maybe it. I don't know. It, it wouldn't make sense because that community is already. It what that is. I mean, this is going to get into the arcana of Orthodox law, but the Eruv is like a an imaginary legal fiction of a wall surrounding a community so that you Correct, can carry things on Shabbat. And I don't see I, how I understand, a tunnel. I understand that. I just mean if it's technically like if if you bought the so people are like okay. We're kind of these the this commu- the the seven seventy folks think we're freaks. What if we buy the Chick Fil A next door and <laughs> and connect them without them knowing? You know what I mean? And like I just be, didn't know. And then it would be a part of the, uh, the Chick Fil A would have the spiritual essence of seven seventy. Yeah, something. I just saying? didn't know if it was. Yeah, it seems like they were trying to connect it for probably non-violent yeah, reasons. No, so, it just so seems it, like it a, wasn't a full ton. So. I think basically the deal is that it isn't actually like a long tunnel in the sense that we would understand that to be. It's more like um, it's it's more like a sort of bank heist type tunnel where to okay. get into the main building, they've started from the building next door and they've been gradually just trying to knock through the basement wall to but get why? from one building to another. But why? Why are they trying yeah, to I get? Just, so they, yeah, I just didn't didn't know if it was a weird loop, like a weird domicile loophole thing or something. So, Jesse's guess so far is the most compelling one. Do you know, Matt? Why? So, why so, did okay, they do? I, it? Okay, so I'm going by this thread. Um, so it says since since the Rebbe's passing, 770 has been a disputed territory. Uh, there are many details and incidents and characters in this saga, and I haven't cared enough to really find out about most of them. However, who controls the synagogue? has practical and emotional and religious significance. The practical part being things like um do we proclaim the Rebbe to be the Messiah during during and after prayers? Uh, so 
he, he, uh, this post says, in short, the legal and official ownership of the building is one group, but they uh, have not been able over the years, over years of uneasy truth, uh, truce, rather, to deal with a radical, uh, uh, I'm just going to say people, because there's a Yiddish word I can't pronounce clearly, uh, who've claimed the turf. So these, this radical group, uh, are mostly Israelis and are known as Svatim after the city of uh, Safed, where they have a large yeshiva. They're not above a bit of violence in defending that 770 turf. Um, Do you so know this- how in, you know how uh, passionate people are about 770, by the way? 770 is the address of the place in Crown Heights. Have you guys ever driven down the main Jew Boulevard on Pico and seen the big Chabad Center? You might not even notice, but if there's an odd building that looks. They shouldn't a little have named it that, by the way. They shouldn't have named yeah, it that. Jew Boulevard? It's, it's, yeah, Jew Boulevard. Yeah, it seems like that's going to inspire. Well, it was like, it was already named that. That was just a coincidence. Um, well, actually, <laughs> like that's Dr. interesting Pimple you Popper. say that. Yeah. That's interesting you say that because I, when I first moved to L.A., I looked on the map and I saw where all the unhoused people live was called Skid Row on the map. And I go, oh, this must be where the term Skid Row comes from. And I looked it up and it's not. It comes from like Seattle. So they just called it that after the homeless people. Oh like my God. they looked at an unhoused population and thought, OK, let's call that shanty town. Like I think that 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 kind of blew my mind. Well, oh, but I, wait. So, I, I, so in L.A., the they're, they're like. Are, um, there are this um, apologies to anyone They're who's like, listening with their children, but there are several. There are multiple streets in London and, and some other cities around the UK that are now called things like Grape Lane, um, which is a charming contraction and rewriting because it was originally uh, the sex district uh, and it was originally called Grope Cunt Lane. Right. (laughs) Which I don't think they should have. That's the reason they renamed it Jew Boulevard, because it was also called Grobe Cunt Lane. (laughs) And that couldn't Um, do. So anyway, if you drive down, if you you drive down, if you drive down 770, uh, if you drive down Jew Boulevard in Los Angeles, you will see a building, which is the Chabad headquarters, which is an exact brick for brick recreation of 770 in Crown Heights. And there's also an exact recreation of 770 built in Jerusalem. They care about Whoa. this building wow. that much. So, so um, that's a very L.A. thing, though, to just be like, that's not the real Millennium Falcon. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> they just like that's like a backup. Yeah, this, this 770 recreation is just like some wood flats. It looks exactly the same from the front and then behind <laughs> right, it. Right, right, um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this po- so this thread says that the Sfatim have taken it upon themselves in recent months to expand 770. Their way of doing this is to start breaking into an adjoining basement. Uh, the main synagogue of 770 is in the basement, uh, which is an old decommissioned mikveh, which is a ritual bath. 770 is too, indeed too small for the massive number of people who wish to pray there, study there, etc., something that more and more Hasidim have been seeking a proper solution to for years. However, a brunch, bunch of teenagers breaking down walls in your free time, you be the judge. So in any, in any case, mm. the actual ownership of 770 called in the cement trucks to repair the dam- this damage and stop progress on the expansion. The Svatim responded territorially, the police became involved, and that's how you have videos of yeshiva students escaping arrest through sewer grates. So they were trying to expand 770 by knocking down the wall through an, uh, a room that was once the, a mikveh that was attached to the synagogue in the building next to 770. Um, so anyway, okay. my circumcision was a yes. trip, guys. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you want me to tell you about that? I'll tell you about that. But then uh, in, in my 
dad's sect of Hasidic Judaism, the, the, the circumcision ceremony takes place in a very ritualized way. It's not a doctor doing it. And uh, it you basically get put on a silver platter and you're surrounded by like garlic and other weird like garlands and paraded around a room on a silver platter, like kind of like Temple of Doom style, like you're about to be the sure. main course. So that was my And the garlic's to make sure it's there's no vampires, to make sure it That's was in right. fact... Yeah. <laughs> you don't okay. have a baby vampire. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Um, um, I've also texted you a map an... that's linked to in that thread. Uh, so you can see... Uh, it's in your text right now, but you can see the... You can see where the expansion is and where the tunnel was. What... Uh, Moshe, what other sub subcultures are we talking... Because so far, these, these are subcultures that were not... Uh, your choice. Not that you wouldn't make that choice later. But you were born into... But I'm, but I'm saying you were you were born no. into these subcultures. No, exactly. And in fact, these two of the, uh, these two subcultures, and by the way, the book itself, it goes through... Um, it's not just memoir. It's like a comedic history of each of these worlds and literally starts at the beginning of the, of the, of the world and goes until I enter that universe. Um, and then it becomes more like traditional memoir. So it's like one part comedic history and one part memoir of my time in these worlds. And I kind of, yeah, I separate them out just like you guys have. There are two subcultures that you wouldn't even really call them necessarily classic subcultures, which are, right. of course, deafness um, and uh, Hasidic Judaism. But I mean, by I the would time call Hasidic I, Judaism uh, a subculture within Judaism, it is like a very specific thing, rather rather than just the sort of general faith. But, but I do agree with you. Yeah, no, but that's to, that's totally fair. Like, in fact, Hasidic Judaism, uh, when it first uh, when it first appeared in the Jewish landscape, was extremely unpopular. Nobody wanted anything to do with it. They were all called heretics, and the the main body of the Jewish community tried to uh, excommunicate the Hasidic Jews because they were just too fucking weird. They danced too much, they dressed too strangely, and all the, the mainstream Jewish people, and this is in like the 1700s, I think, or maybe even much earlier than that. I could be wrong about that. Um, uh, they, they just wanted nothing to do with the Hasidic Jews, but they, they just stuck around long enough to become mainstream themselves and as hardcore as the people that wanted to excommunicate them in the first place. Um, so the, all of these kind of all these world these two worlds that i was born into made me feel this kind of bizarre feeling of never quite fitting in my life it was not a hasidic upbringing my life was i was nine months a year in in uh uh oakland california with my deaf mother uh, a totally secular kid in public schools completely uh non-religious in in really any way at all and then the, in on my summer vacations i uh would fly back to the old country to Brooklyn and literally cosplay as a Hasidic Jew for two months a year. So that was my summer vacation and all that back and forth and sort of split identity created uh, a feeling of like incredible um, feeling like I never fit in, which is what uh, made getting high and getting drunk with the kids, the bad kids at the back of the school feels so incredibly uh, medicinal, which is who I fell in with, which is what led me to going to rehab three times by the time I turned 16, which is the subject of my first book, Casher in the Rye. And when I finally got sober at uh, 15, almost 16 years old, I was like this 16-year-old kid who needed to recreate a social life. And the way that I did that 
the first big choice that I made other than going to 12-step groups and AA, which is what uh, the, the first chapter of the book is about. It's all about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous and Young People's AA and the Just Say No campaign and the rehab culture that led a whole generation of people about my age to get sent to rehab when they were 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Yeah. So I did that for a long time. Um, but then I found when I was about a year sober, I found uh, uh, I saw a flyer on a pole uh, saying that there was a big rave coming to town, Cyberfest 95. And I bought a ticket to that rave and I walked in and I changed my life once again and fell in with that. Um, I could keep going. You want me to tell you the other subcultures? We could go. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, uh, I'll so do the you're, fast you're, version. You're already sober, but you're going to raves. Now, you stayed sober for the rave culture. I, in not only did I stay sober, it, I went to an NA meeting across the street from that first rave and told a bunch of like middle aged drug addicts, like, you know, the, the beauty of this program is it's allowed me the freedom to go to that. You see that guy with the cat in the hat hat and the 42 <laughs> right, right. sizes too big for him. Those pants? were huge. I get to, Those were huge. Yeah, yeah. They were literally huge and I wore them. Yeah. I wore them well. <laughs> yeah. um, and I fell in I fell into the rave world and we can go back and talk about any of these worlds you want or we can go through some science stuff, but I fell into the rave world so hard that I it became my uh, my full identity. It was this like, you know, I came from such like chaotic background like with disabled parents and identity crisis and then drug addiction and then crime and arrest and violence. And when I walked into the, that first rave and met that culture, it was such a, I don't know if you guys have been to raves, but it, especially in San Francisco, it was such a soft and welcoming and warm kind of hippie, like all the things yeah. that people roll their eyes around about raves about was the thing that I needed more than anything in the world. It's like, I was sure. getting, I was getting that, healthy. That warm, from, that warm chemical brothers embrace that's what, <laughs> exactly that's what you need right. <laughs> yeah it is though and no, i know I like it. people I, I i don't come on i'm no stranger to a jamiroquai hat i uh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know <laughs> by the way uh, i almost immediately after the first party i was like kind of a like wannabe gangster that was my thing when i when i got was in rehab and when i first got sober i was like you know, speaking of identity crisis, I didn't just think I was deaf and Hasidic. I also definitely was African-American. <laughs> and um, and after that first rave, I literally like went to the store, bought a bunch of goofy ass like Jinko pants, like bleached my hair blonde, put barrettes in it, sprinkled glitter in my hair and became a completely new human being, like almost overnight. And the, the thing I'm most ashamed about slash most proud about in terms of accessories was, uh, you know, uh, in the 90s, people would suck on pacifiers at raves because sure. when you take when you take Molly, you like grind your teeth. And so people would suck on pacifiers to discourage grinding your teeth into little rave nubs. And uh, I bought a pacifier. But you'll have to remember, I was clean and sober. So I didn't sure. do it to avoid grinding my teeth. I did it because they looked so fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, you staying sober is how you could afford those Jinkos. What did you hit? Uh, Gadzooks <laughs> right. or what? Were you doing Gadzooks? Ross, baby. It's all about Ross. Ross. What? Okay. Because I remember I, I had like a pair of Jinko, but I, uh, which, which is the, the singular. Uh, it's like Lego, right? Yeah, it's like yeah, Lego. Yeah. yeah, I had several Jinko. Um, but, you had one Jinko that you'd put on, and then a regular size pant leg on the other. No, I mean, because you could get those like you could get like utility at Target, like the knockoff Jinko, 
And That's funny because Jinko is a knockoff of Kickwear, so we're really down the ladder. Oh, <laughs> yes, it is? yeah, it is. Yes, Kickwear were the expensive ones for the real rich raver kids. Yeah, I, uh, I'm constantly like finding out. I mean, at, I watch a lot of Antiques Roadshow, um, and <laughs> I'm constantly finding out the stuff that I thought was like the nicest thing you could get is nowhere close. Does that make uh-huh. sense? Like, like when I grew up, like the best watch you could get was like a Rolex. Like everyone knows about it. Like, oh man, if I had like Rolex money, but it's like, as far as like rich people watches go, it's like in the bottom 1% of. Is it really? Rich. I mean, they're like $50,000. Yeah, but that's nothing. You get like a, a, a Philippe Patek or whatever, you know, it, it, you I have one like of two, those. Two million sure. bucks on a watch, but it's the yeah, same I have with one like, of those. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're no. growing up and you're, you're like Lamborghini. I need a Lamborghini, but it's like that's not even that's that's like a poor person's rich thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, so like, you're saying you're saying the Jinko is the Lamborghini of the Yeah, when I was world. a kid it was like I didn't know there was a nicer uh absurd pant. <laughs> yeah. God. What, what trauma we've been through. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, I'll keep pushing. So I went to raves. I became a rave promoter. I started throwing my own parties in the 90s. I became a DJ with some sort of recognition. And were you then doing like hard, the- hardware sets? What were you doing? You have a computer going? Is- How was your setup? No. This a hardware is set 90s. is like a hardware set's like you have like a 909 and a 303. Oh. I was a vinyl DJ because that's okay, all got that it, we got had it. back then. Um, got it. I became a DJ, and then I became an ecstasy dealer. So now I'm a clean and sober, rave-promoting DJ uh, drug dealer. Um, and and at about at about a year in, or two years into raving, I uh, heard about a big rave that was happening in the desert. Uh, somebody said, oh, yeah, there's a rave in the desert. That, uh, it's called Burning Man. And so I drove out to Burning Man uh, for the first time in 1996 when I was, I think, 16 or 17 years old. And um, this last year, uh, I beca- was my 24th time at uh, going to Burning Man. I started working at Burning Man and helping to put the festival on. Um, and, and then eventually... One time a year, you can uh, fuck other guys' wives. That's, uh, <laughs> that's right. No, no, there's, no, there's no cucking like watching the Burning Man fuck your wife. It's, a, it's, a, it's really quite the, the effigy himself. You ever seen your wife get dicked by an effigy, man? <laughs> <laughs> Sixty-foot flammable effigy. <laughs> Man, I've never been so hard. And then eventually, uh, <laughs> I started doing stand-up comedy, and uh, and and that brings us to today. So that's all of them. That's all six of the worlds that I that I describe wow. and go through in this book. Wow. Do you feel uh, like this is? Um, I guess I'm guessing most of your friends are aware of most or all of these, but is this sort of an outing, like? The Burning Man thing, I, I, th- I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't talk about it a ton in the comedy part of your life, um, or maybe that's changed. Like, do no, you like to I keep think this that's world right. separate, and, and is there any like uh, worry or just like, oh, this will be interesting now that everybody knows about all these other parts of me? No, I think that's right. I, like, I've, I've definitely been a person for whom compartmentalization was a part of my life. Like, you know, I would say I'm, I'm more... Um, 
I, I more in writing this book realized that like all of these worlds that feel totally disparate raves and Burning Man and stand up and Judaism and um, and ASL uh, and deafness and you know I became a sign language interpreter for 15 years and I write about my experiences in that world too they don't feel like they go together and the obvious conclusion is that like I'm the connective tissue that brings all these things together but also having written this book it's really interesting to see that like the, I wouldn't say they go together but in terms of what they've offered to my life like they they are not as diametrically opposed uh, as they seem they've all given me this kind of consciousness and understanding that first of all they're all people from outside the margins of society that are like struggling in one way or another to change the world and to survive and I like that those are the kinds of people that I like I like people that are weird I like people that are outside the, the lines um, I like small groups that, that like raise a middle finger to anybody that tells them they don't belong and and I there's a lot there is a lot of connective tissue uh, that connects these worlds together and that's really what the book's about and just to be clear raising the middle finger what letter is that signing oh yeah, that by the way is uh perfect american sign language for fuck you just so you know oh. uh middle finger up doesn't have a different meaning it's got the it's a un, that's a universal right there is that universal mm. in um in and, other country sign language as well because i remember here I, I didn't realize until having a chat with you a few years ago that how completely different British Sign Language is from American Sign Language. Like, it's a whole different language group. Well, throwing in all those extra U's yes. alone is going yeah. to be a nightmare. Right, and all that Cockney rhyme slang is very difficult in British Sign Language. <laughs> yes, uh, in fact, uh, French Sign Language is much more intelligible, apparently, to a an American Sign Language user than is British Sign Language, because American Sign Language comes directly from the French Sign Language language school, there was a guy named Laurent Clerc that was l almost literally purchased from the uh, Institute for uh, for the for the Deaf in Paris and and exported to America to create American Sign Language. So what you what you have when you look at American Sign Language is a kind of bouillabaisse of uh, French Sign Language and uh, all of the kind of native. Uh, signs that he discovered once he landed in America, you know, what the communities had come up with on their own. And interestingly, there was an incredibly uh, large deaf community on Martha's Vineyard for many years. Uh, there was something like 25% of the people on Martha's Vineyard be before it became like a weird vacation destination for Kennedys to fuck their mistresses. It used <laughs> to be a, a, a really high concentration of deaf people. And so everybody on Martha's Vineyard knew sign language because everybody was either deaf themselves or was related to or married to someone who was deaf. So the whole community spoke sign. And they took that sign system and, and French sign language and a little bit of the Plains Indian sign language. It's called PISL, which is like not from deaf people, but in fact from the Native American tribes that had created, you know, that kind of like uh, cowboys and Indians movie thing you might see where a Native American is like doing signals to each other. Have you seen that before? To be yeah. able to attack in quiet or something? Or yes, why? exactly. But in <clears throat> fact, the reason that they created that system was that in in, in Native American uh, pre uh, uh, United States Native American world, all these tribes were uh, linguistically different from one another. So they they were right next to each other, but a lot of them couldn't communicate with one another. And so to create like a tribal uh, trade language, they created a kind of universal sign system uh, that would allow, you know, a Sioux to communicate oh, cool. with, uh, with with a Lakota or whatever. Or that, those are both Sioux, whatever it is, you know, these two different tribes. 
And so Clerk took French Sign Language, this Martha's Vineyard Sign Language, Plains Indian Sign Language, and kind of mashed it all together and created American Sign Language. And the British sign system has a completely different linguistic journey. And that's why I do not understand British people, both when they speak regular <laughs> spoken English and when they do sign. <laughs> And did American did American Sign Language become the world dominating language? I'm not to say that this is good, but the way that English, you know, if you go to any touristy country that you can assume you probably don't have to learn their language, they're going to have learned some English to be able to have tourists. Uh, That's like that is a great question, Andy, and one that I've never been asked. Usually, people ask me if sign language is universal. Uh, and it like blows their minds to think that why didn't they just create a universal sign language? But <laughs> as if it's like why didn't we create a universal right. spoken language? The same Esperanto, reason we were come far on. away. We tried. Yeah. yeah. There is an Esperanto. No, uh, uh, ASL is not the lingua franca. Is that what it's called? That is what it's called, right? Uh, that's what I was going to say, that, but I wasn't sure that's what that meant. I think it is, though. Yeah. I, I think so. It, it, that English has become in the world, um, but that there literally is means an international. French, right. Confusingly. <laughs> English is not the French language that English is. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, but there is a, a kind of Esperanto of sign language that people have been trying to get off the, off the ground, and it is about as successful as Esperanto. Right, right. So it's hard uh, to travel as a deaf person. Uh, by the way, correction. It, no. Is it, is it me? Fr- Wait, I'm, I'm, now, I, I'm now worried that I actually have given misinformation. Uh, the term is taken from the Mediterranean lingua franca, which is a romance-based pidgin language used by traders in the Mediterranean basis, basin rather. So, uh-huh. there would be so bits of French Esperanto, in there, but it's, it's like a, it's a gen- yeah, it's a sort of generic romance language. Pidgin. It's proto proto Esperanto. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what was your question? I thought it was a good one, but I've lost it. Oh, wait, you were started to say uh, something, about, but when you're traveling, there is sort of. Oh. It's not that difficult, actually, because while sign systems are not uh, universal, what is universal is the experience of the deaf at becoming masters of figuring out a way to have themselves understood. Um, And so when two deaf people who do not share a common language find each other internationally, I've seen it happen with my mother, um, they are able to communicate on a level that if you went to China Uh, and met a Chinese speaker that didn't know any English would not have. Uh, There is an ability for them to find ways to understand each other using, uh, I would say, uh, almost meta language because they are used to that kind of communication that's really impressive and and, and amazing to watch. Wow. I can't, yeah, I can't picture what that entails, but I believe you, yeah. (laughs) Well, they're used to using gesture to make themselves understood and when you have two masters of gesture even though they don't share an actual language they do share the experience of making themselves understood through right. through gesture and hand signals and they have an almost a, an acuity with their with their eyes and their ability to uh, process language through their eyes that you just don't have and i don't have it either to be frank i mean i bet i'd be better at it than you would andy uh, mm-hmm. Jesse, Ouch. I think you'd nail it. Uh, <laughs> Jesse would really nail it. He, it would be no problem for him. But, what, what, but I still what, what am not. Why? What do you mean? No, I'm joking. That was a joke. That was a, that was a riff on a comedy podcast, guys. <laughs> okay. No, I was just uh, no, I was just imagining. I'm trying to think. I'm just trying to imagine more connective tissue. Sorry, that's where I was off in my... I was like, okay. Uh, Judaism and the deaf community. A lot of hand gestures. But sure, you have yeah. a pacifier in. You're wearing a pacifier. Yes. 
So there's no lip reading. It's just I'm right. I'm, oh, that's fair. I'm yeah. trying to imagine like what like uh, what you what you were accidentally rebelling against as a 16 year old getting in the rave community because it's like okay, this is very loud music, and sure. everyone has pacifiers. A lot of glow sticks happening in the hands. There's not much of a sign ability at a C- rave. Counterpoint: well, I will, If I, you have two people who I, are fluent in sign language, isn't that kind of perfect in a loud nightclub setting? Well, and, yeah, and not only and, that, Matt, that's a great point. That's a great point. But not only that, deaf people, I am not kidding. Of all the music scenes in the world, the one they love the most is definitely the electronic music. I would assume. That sure. makes sense because yeah, it's like assume. heavy, like the, you feel the bass, you feel the, the rhythmic. And simple. Yeah. Heavy and simple rhythms, too. It's like four, four to the floor, disco beats. They can, they can feel that very simply as opposed to going right. to see, see like Ginger Baker and Cream with a percussion that they don't quite understand because they can't hear it. Right, right. Uh, yeah, no, that, that makes sense to me. Um, uh, but I will say this, Jesse. When I started DJing, I had a massive advantage uh, as a 16-year-old bedroom DJ uh, having deaf parents because I could absolutely fucking mm. blare my sound system <laughs> and, and, as I learned how to DJ and my mother never said a single word. Wow. Ah, very interesting. Uh, huh. Well, it is very interesting. <laughs> and fact, no, no, I'm just... written about it. No, I'm just... I'm such, I'm such a, like, music gearhead. I'm just, like, imagine... I'm, like, how much different... I'm I'm like uh I'm like that is that's interesting to not have to worry about volume like that at 3 a.m. or whatever that's that's a unique advantage. I'm not I'm not trying great. to spin it like it's that's some big advantage. You know I'm not saying like worth it. Sorry you felt alienated. Worth it though. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> no, it was I'm, worth it. I mean, <laughs> no, you know um, one of the weird things about deaf people that people don't know and don't understand is like if you if you guys had kids and they were deaf, you'd probably think, oh no, my kid is deaf, but. But when deaf people have kids and they're deaf, they're lighting cigars and high-fiving. If there's one thing about the deaf community that uh, is at pretty close to universally true, while the deaf are frustrated by the inability of, human, of, of hearing people to communicate with them and the, the frustrations and barriers they have to leap over in order to be understood and interact equally in society, I've never met a deaf person that was like, I wish I was hearing, except maybe my dad. But every other deaf person I've ever known is fiercely, fiercely proud of being deaf and wouldn't have it any other way. Right. No, for sure. Are, are your, uh, were your parents born deaf? They were, yeah. Both of my parents were. Okay. Well, my, my, yeah, both of my parents were born deaf. I used to think that that wasn't true. Uh, I used to think that my mom got sick when she was young, and then I had a 23andMe done, and I carry a, a dormant d- gene for deafness, and I confronted my mom about it, screamed at her. She started crying and admitting, no, this isn't true. But we found out that actually <laughs> she had a genetic predisposition to deafness as well. Okay. Has that come into play with, uh, have you considered, I mean, it's a totally different issue, but uh, like your own children, things like that? I, or well, if, should you have them? Um, well, when I had, I, I do have them. I have one. And what? When I, when, what? I'm yeah, so mad. Then, I'm so sorry. Congrats. I'm sorry. I don't. I know nothing. I know nothing. I didn't know you guys. Well, but, you know. Uh, congrats, man. Thanks. Um, it's been. Uh, she's six. Uh, and when when we were pregnant with her, and I got those DNA results back, I had like an hour long existential crisis. Like, wow, I might have a deaf kid. What will that be? And then I'm one of the most. 
ready for that experience people on sure. earth and and but emotionally i just didn't I, I i had never thought of it as a possibility because my brother's hearing and i'm hearing and i did play this whole tape out where i had this whole emotional journey about like what it would be to have kid, deaf kids and teach them sign and them having to deal with the same frustrations that my mother has had to deal with and making sure there was a positive environment both linguistically and just supporting my child in their deafness and then I called my stepfather who's a scientist and he was like no you both have to be carriers of the gene for this to have any possibility stand down oh. anxiety stand down so my child <laughs> hears and does not sign and that's a great frustration wow oh, oh yeah because then like communicating with your mom is an issue one of my great failures as a parent one of many my child also smokes <laughs> <laughs> yep every well working those minds are hard man yeah I, uh... yeah no it's tough <laughs> young people man i know i know well I'm i feel to get her on, a, on had... a jewel yeah i feel uh, yeah Admittedly, six years ago, I was going through some stuff, but I feel bad that I missed it. That's, uh... No, you know what, Jesse? You and I talked about German shepherds over the pandemic while I had a child and you didn't realize it. And it was very helpful. And guess what I got lying on my floor right now? Uh, a golden doodle? <laughs> a, a, a an effigy of Burning Man and a, a <laughs> bunch of deaf prisoners. No, I, got a, I have a German Shepherd here. So Terrific. you've been very, you've helped me a great deal, Jesse. Feel no good. Yes, yes, they're, uh, yeah, they're, I, uh, they're wonderful. I got one, one last, one, I, one last deaf question before, uh, because you are my go-to person. If I, well, one of a couple of go-to people. If I have questions about deafness that I want to pick brains out, but I remember when Coda came out, yeah. seeing a couple of people who. Uh, like a couple of deaf people saying that Troy Kotzer, is that how you pronounce his last name? Um, who's I the male so. lead in it? Um, was a really beautiful signer. So I, I presume that's yes. sort of analogous to being, you know, um, an actor having a really great speaking voice. Um, but like, what is what does that mean exactly to say that someone's a beautiful signer? That's a great question. Um, you know, there's a part in the book where I describe uh, the comparison, literally ranking English versus American Sign Language, uh -huh. uh, what's better, right? And if you put them up against one another, um, there, there are advantages to English and every spoken language and advantages to sign language. English has a gigantic advantage over sign language in terms of vocabulary. There's something like, I don't know, 300,000 words or something in English. And sign language has something like between 10,000 and 60,000 unique uh, um, signs for specific words, right? So that's a gigantic 500 for advantage. snow, which is weird. <laughs> that's right. I feel like they, yeah. they really overdid it on the snow. <laughs> um, well, actually, because sign language borrowed from the uh, Plains Indian sign language in sign, there's over 300 ways to say never trust the white man. But, <laughs> sure. Um, sure. But... But so that's a giant advantage for, for English, right? Or and any spoken language. Vocabulary doesn't even compare. English, spoken language beats sign language down easy, right? But what sign language has a massive advantage on uh, spoken language and English in particular is the ability to use the language in ways that don't um, adhere to rules. I mean, they have rules, but um, you can go off in a way that you never could with spoken language. You can go off the vocabulary page to such a degree that you can have an you can tell an entire story and never use 
uh, a single um, uh, vocabulary word using what are called classifiers, uh, which is essentially um, making up signs that are completely uh, intelligible and completely understandable to an American Sign Language user, and I would assume every other sign system user, but you're not using vocabulary words. You're, you're, you're almost as if painting a picture in the air. In the book, I describe, um, I describe a, a teacher saying the sentence um, in, a, in, a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a in a lone village, um, a group of anarchists was surrounded by the government forces who rushed in and destroyed them. Right now, in 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 sign language, in spoken language, there's only so many ways you can say that. You know, you can you have to use the words in a in a in a lone village, a group of ant. I mean, you have to use some combination of those words. Right, you can but use synonyms language, or or metaphors to an extent, but yes. But but yeah, you're still gonna come back to you have you you you're you're bound by the rules of spoken language. Right, but in sign language. I can show you, and this would not be like somebody, a deaf person going, what are you talking about? I could show you, in, I could sign maybe three words, but paint a picture showing the village with my hands. You know, I use the word village and I, and I, and I, and I show Hippies, you. Hippies, fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Think, yeah. Uh, Burning Man, effigy, he fucks your wife. Yep. Um, but I could show you the village. I can show you with my fingers all of the government forces lined up by literally just showing them in space. I can show those forces running in. I can show the little band of anarchists in the middle of the field uh, looking scared. I show with my facial expressions their fear. And then I go toggle over to the government forces and I show the fierceness in their faces. And then my fingers show them running in. And then I go back to the anarchists and more fear. And then I sign the word destroy. And I've maybe used five words, but I've said, the, told the exact story of what so, happened to so those you actually anarchists. How do we know, how do we know they're anarchists? I, I'm, I, it's the anarchist I, I, part that... <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because uh, in the book, I actually, that is the... Um, that is the description, the, the word that I use to prove the point of how fluid sign language can be. There sure. is no sign for, for anarchy in sign language. And so if I sat down as a sign language interpreter and there was a deaf student who was hearing a lecture on anarchy, um, this is another way in which sign language is superior to spoken language. Because there's no vocabulary word for anarchist, I would engage in a negotiation with the deaf student. I would say, I would spell the word, I would say he's using the word anarchy. Uh, and right. I would proffer, I would offer a suggestion. Okay, he's going to be saying anarchy a lot. What do you think if I uh, do like metal horns and flick my tongue back and forth like I'm eating air pussy? And the person would sure. say, no, I don't really like that. That seems a little inappropriate and immature. What if you put your A in the, uh, an A in the air, but you match it to the sign for revolution, which is a fist in the air, uh, kind of a black power fist, if you can picture that, but you make it into an A instead of a fist, right? And I would say, got it. That's the sign for anarchy for the next hour, right? So now okay. I've got my sign established for anarchy, and, and we have agreed that that's what's going to be anarchy. So when I describe the anarchists, I would use that sign, but that's the only thing I'd have to say. Anarchists, and then from then on, you know who they are, and I can literally almost, it's almost a, a Brian Regan esque act out to describe sure. what it is that's happening in that village. But then you so forget when they say the some, negotiation, so then the student thinks that the, these people are eating air pussy in, <laughs> yes, in I mean. the village. Right. It gets they very, get very confusing. Confused. The government agents but, so, ate a bunch of pussy and yep. went to Burning Man. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. But it, but that, wow. Matt, to answer your question, 
a, a beautiful signer is someone who, yes, in a way, it's somebody with like a beautiful, I wouldn't say speaking voice, I would say uh, a beautiful way with words, right. um, a, a good public speaker, and someone who does sign crisp and beautifully, but also is signs creatively and artistically and uses that flexibility that American Sign Language and other sign systems have uh, to create a beautiful kind of landscape of language, which is a huge ad, uh, advantage that sign systems have over spoken. That's so that's great. So it sort of almost plays into also just being a gr- really great actor and conveying the scene that he's presenting. Well, in fact, deaf people, I would say, have an advantage um, in terms of certainly silent film style acting, because a big part of sign language, even just literally when you're communicating, is using big expressive facial expressions and gestures uh, in order to tell a story and to be understood. So much so that my father, who was a performance artist and uh, modern art, uh, abstract impressionist painter and, uh, and filmmaker before he became an ultra-Orthodox Jew, was spotted on the street by Marcel Marceau, according to family legend. And Marcel Marceau, the world's most famous mime, tried to take my dad on the road as like a mime intern. I could have had a very different life <laughs> if my <laughs> father had become the other most famous mime on earth. Wow. I mean, it might have just swapped out the comedy world for the mime world, and the rest would have been the same. In the, in the <laughs> yeah, subcultures. exactly, exactly. And then he got himself into the different invisible box of religion. And folks, <laughs> let me... <laughs> no, it, well, in that mime performance, you're, you're feeling on the wall, and then you find a tunnel, and you run into it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> folks, man, well, do we have, uh, what, what, what do we have going on here? What are we doing? I don't, yeah, I don't know. Do we do a story? Is it? Uh, I think we've yeah. learned a lot. Uh, we could also do a, just a bonus episode with an actual science story. Up to you guys. What do you feel like? Uh, I, I'm I down with should, whatever you guys one, are down with. We could cram one in there. Not everyone's on the Patreon, and they should be. But That's yeah, true. Let's, let's, let's not. squeeze in a so quick story. That let's squeeze one in. Was this who sent this? Well, let me let me say to the let me say to the, the to the listeners out there that all these stories and more are available for pre-order or yes. post-order, depending on when this story comes out. It's Random House. Subculture Vulture. It's on every bookseller you could possibly find. Go to MosheCasher.com and you can get this book. Get it. I, uh, I Moshe's a great writer. I loved the first book. It was a very, oh. very enjoyable read. So I, I have no Thank doubt you. this new one is going to be excellent. Well, you're yeah, in yeah. it, Matt. You're in it. Oh, yeah. I think. You, did you mention the, the, was it the Matt's, alien story? One of Matt's uh, um, Burning Man stories, with permission, was That's included. That's right. I forgot about that. And... So, so the story of, of, of Matt's uh, funniest moment at Burning Man has been included. Nice. Awesome. Um, Very cool. Oh, and before we get to a story, and we, we will, I'm sorry, um, uh, got a new Spats entry. <coughs> oh, yep. nice. This comes Moshe, via... Should we get Moshe up to speed on this? We'll get Moshe up to speed okay. on Spats real quick. Uh, Moshe, uh, Spats is a thing that's completely made up. It's an acronym. Uh, S-P-A-T-S, and it has to do with um, vehicles that actors have uh, piloted. So in a movie, This is Jesse right, trying to get it as the new EGOT. Yes. Okay, so in a movie, it, you have to have been on a spaceship, a plane, okay. an automobile, a train, and a ship, like a sailing vessel. That's the spats. Uh, now, it doesn't have to be the same movie, right? So like... Um, Brad Pitt. Has Brad Pitt been to space? Has he been? Oh, yeah. Ad Astra. Hasn't he? Yeah, Ad Astra. Yeah. Ad Astra. Ad Astra. There you go. Ad Asner. 
Ed Asner. <laughs> um, Motion capture, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, there are the classics, like the easy and easy spats, like Will Smith, Tom Hanks. Sure. Um, sure. Tom Hanks... Tom Hanks not only has a spats, but each of the letters of the spats, there is a movie just about that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like he was in a Captain a, Phillips, Sully, yeah. Apollo 13. And we've, we've had a Express. few like say, single movie spats or single franchise spats where someone spats as oh, a wow. one character. So uh, Kevin over on Twitter, um, due to an oft-forgotten but classic children's film from the 80s, Explorers, Ethan Hawke. New Spats member. Explorers. Beautiful. Yeah. I remember that. That had River Phoenix, I believe, right? Yeah, who I also think has a Spats because of that, that movie. I mean, he was on a train in Indiana, in Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, yeah. Um, but Ethan Hawke is also like, he's, uh, he's been on a dog sled. He's been oh, on everything, that guy. Fang, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, so... Logan, thank Logan you. Paul. Logan Paul's been... Has he yeah, been I'd in space? Yeah, I'd submit Logan Paul. Oh yeah, I um, yeah sure. Yep. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, uh, Moshe, you're obviously not into what this podcast is about, man. Which is coming up every. You have to come on here with all your childhood experience when we talk for an hour every week about new Spats members. Um, Wait, have you um, have you guys uh, determined? You guys should do uh, uh, um, real world Spats, like actual like, Spats. Oh, like who has been on each of those things? So, so it's limited yeah, to astronauts. Is there anybody? Yeah, right. It's, or, or people that have taken commercial space flights, right? Oh, it's true. It's I true. would, I would say Elon Musk is very close to a spats. I would say Richard Branson has definitely spatsed. Elon yeah, Musk Richard has Branson tried to spat. invent his own version of every spats. Like he's yes, got the Hyperloop, right. <laughs> he's got the Tesla. But I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure Richard Branson has been on one of those space flights. And Did you know right, my grandfather was Elon Musk's uh, Elon Musk's fucking dean in college? <laughs> what? Whoa. Yeah. Do you know? Uh, do you know this? This is a weird. Yeah, bit Queens of University Elon Musk in trivia. Canada. Oh, um, this is a weird bit of Elon Musk trivia. Did you know that I support every decision he's ever made and every statement he's ever uttered? <laughs> <laughs> That's weird, right? That is weird. Yeah, I wouldn't think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, if you guys are awake tonight at 1 a.m., look westward. There's going to be a Vandenberg launch. I'm going to oh, there check is? that uh, out okay. in the backyard. Oh, What's yeah, dude. I, I was up on you, the Jesse. beach. I was up What's on the that? beach in Santa Barbara when they did a, a, a SpaceX launch, and it was one of those moments that people have in their life where you look up and you go, is this the end of the world? Because there was just a... I didn't know about the launch, and it was just like there was a huge rocket with this... like. Just it felt like coming towards me, and oh, I was yeah. like, "I think this might be it." Well, we we went knowingly to see a launch, like aware that it was going to happen, and there was a whole load of people lined up by the road in one of the closer places you can get to the camp, um, to the base. And I was there going like, "Okay, according to the map, I think it should be. I think it should be coming from this kind of direction, so we should be looking over here." And it, the second the launch happened, it became so obvious how pointless that was. To, like, it was like, all right, guys, we should be looking over here when the entire sky lights up. <laughs> it's just like the brightest Man. thing you've ever seen outside. So you thought of it would be sun. some sort of like a, uh, so it looked like almost like an asteroid, like an extinction event or something. Yeah, yes, is what you're trying to say. Well, the problem it is with funny. Ex- <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, oh no, I was just saying the problem with extinction is that it's permanent and that's it. So I. Oh, you know, Jesse, Jesse, that's where you're wrong, because according to this story, the CNN story what are you, that what are you talking about? What do you got? 
there is a de-extinction plan for the dodo. Literally, it's the, literally called the opposite of everything I said. Yeah, the the the, the, the animal <laughs> yeah, that is the, the platonic ideal of an extinct thing is <laughs> the the most known extinct thing. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the thing that is is held up as the euphemistic thing that is no longer with us. But an audacious collaboration between geneticists and conservationists plans to bring back the extinct dodo and reintroduce it to its once native habitat in Mauritius. So this wow US is the le- yeah. least interesting sequel of Jurassic Park ever. <laughs> <laughs> so this company called Dodo Colossal Park. Bi- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Colossal Biosciences, which is this American uh, company, is pursuing the de-extinction of multiple species, including the woolly mammoth. There we go, getting a bit more dangerous. Has entered a partnership with the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation to find a suitable location for the large flightless birds. The dodo has been extinct since 1681. I didn't know they had it that specific. A combination of uh, predation by humans and animals introduced by humans led to its downfall. Uh, turning it into a textbook Beautiful. case for extinction. I can, I can finally have my actual kink uh, played out in real life. <laughs> right. Not a man from another race, but the dodo bird. <laughs> just a, a train of dodo birds fucking yeah. my life. Yep. I, yep. Go sit in the cluck chair. Thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Very good, Jesse. <laughs> bravo. Bravo. Thank you. Still almost got it. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> so Colossal first announced its intention to resurrect the dodo um, early last year, January 2023. Exactly when it will be able to do so remains unclear, but fresh details regarding how it plans to recreate the species have been revealed. The full genome of the dodo has been sequenced by Beth Shapiro, who's lead paleogeneticist at Colossal. In addition, the company says it has now sequenced the genome of the solitaire, which is an extinct relative of the dodo from Rodriguez Island, close to Mauritius, and the Nicobar pigeon, which is the dodo's closest living relative, which resides on islands in Southeast Asia spanning the Indian and Pacific Oceans. So they've now found cells that can act as a precursor for ovaries or testes in the pigeon can grow successfully in a chicken embryo. They're now researching to see if these cells, called primordial germ cells, or PGCs, can turn into sperm and eggs. This is a vital step Mm. in creating hybridized animals through reproduction. Scientists have previously introduced PGCs. I'm sick of this. (laughs) No, this is so disgusting. I hate this so much. PGC culture is what's ruining society. Today. I know. I know. You know, it's like they're trying to re woke and PGC all the language they were using. I'm sick of it. Me too. Me PGC too. PGC mind virus has to be stopped. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, oh, that sounds like my man Elon. And I love that guy. <laughs> yeah. I No, just the other day I was at a MAPCO and the bathrooms were divided by primordial germ cells. And I yeah. thought, oh, fuck's sake. <laughs> fuck's right. sake. Fuck you. Just try to get a coffee. No, I, That's where honestly, I go for I went coffee. To my do- That's where I have I, my coffee. I, I went to my daughter's uh, school the other day. And they they had her in a circle and they were reading her a story about um, testes being germinated in a chicken egg. And I was like, this is <laughs> pedophilia. Yeah. And I just stopped it right there. No, I'm sick of the scientist brunches. You know, I'll protest them. Mm-hmm. I'll go protest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what are they doing? So they're creating, they're trying to do hybridized animals. A chicken fathered by a duck. Yeah. Yeah. They're making the to duck. It's a- yeah, they're it's making a living turducken. turducken. It's an evolutionary turducken. This is really scary. It's like Cthulhu. I, 
I thought for way too long in life that a turducken was a naturally occurring, like they they, <laughs> the they legger. no, like they oh, got like the animals <laughs> yes. to eat each other in that order and then killed the, the you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like I thought it was actually in the stomach, not just stuffed in. So the, wait, so you thought that the turkey was real turkey, but that the chicken and the duck was partially shit? No, <laughs> half digested. It would have to be yeah. very. It would, no, it'd have to be very quick, like. Like the chicken, uh, would, sure. it would all it would all have to happen within like an hour, and then mm-hmm. you kill the largest animal and you have a turducken. Yeah, that's uh, why I, a turducken costs fourteen thousand dollars because they yeah. have to <laughs> captivate them all and and make them eat each other and kill them within an hour. Yeah, in those yeah. moments when you first take a bite of the turducken, you are a hume turducken, aren't you? That's a good oh, call. Oh, hume duck. Yeah. Hume turducken. Yeah. That's a good call. And I'm technically uh, a Moshe's wife, Hume Turducken, because I'm getting my ass eaten <laughs> while he watches. Jesse, Jesse, Jesse. I loved the cluck chair, but I do think you perhaps have gone a bit too far. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> we weren't supposed to inject ourselves into the hypotheticals. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Made it, that it's made it was too much for me. No, I'm sorry. Y'all had a picture in our minds that was specific. It went from being sorry. general to, yeah. Wow, okay. Well, this I have mo- colon cancer, is- so somebody a bit anti at Okay, fine. Okay. So, fine. No, listen, ableist. This is, ableist. That was, a, that was more uh, of a violation than digging a tunnel into my holy, sanct- um, the holy of 770. <laughs> yeah. Uh by the way, the place where my favorite 770 replica is is uh, at Shabad Shabad Casino in Vegas. They have a, it's <laughs> just scale. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you, I was sitting you on meet, there for too long. You meet the guy uh, and everybody gets a chip. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, it's a tip for the waitress. Yeah. yeah. We should wrap up the main episode, but uh, one more time, Moshe, where can our listeners find like find your book i presume it's going to be sold through all the all the booksellers and can be pre-ordered through all of those all the places and then when does this episode come out do you know like probably pre- today or tomorrow. Yeah, yeah today or tomorrow. oh great for those who pre-order the book uh, you can go to moshekasher.com m-o-s-h-e-k-a-s-h-e-r.com if you pre-order the book i'm do and i'm not coming on book tour to a city near you i will be coming to new york dc Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles. But if you're not in one of those cities and you pre-order the book, it gets you special access to an online book event where I'm having six moderators uh, moderate one from each of the worlds, moderate um, this book in, in some controlled chaos. We have um, um, Max Greenfield. We have uh, um, from the neighbors and New Girl, Nick Kroll, Reggie Watts, uh, Niall DeMarco, uh, Alex Edelman, um, and, and I think it'll be and Atsuko Okatsuka so I think it'll be very fun and you get special access to that so pre-order the book now it would mean a great deal to me I really am proud of it and think people will love it just go to my website and all the links are there that's very very, very cool, cool. Um, very cool and you can find so out just like a, it's like a literal joke you're constructing on stage like a rabbi and Diplo <laughs> walk into a bar <laughs> walk into it like... exactly <laughs> Okay. You, you Very can cool. find us as always. Probablyscience.com is the website. Uh, you that's where we post all the links that we talk about. You can also find our PayPal and Patreon links on there. Thank you all the people who support the show. And also you can email us, probablyscience at gmail.com for any questions, comments, clarifications, stories you'd like us to cover. You can find us on Twitter at probablyscience, individually at Jesse Case, at Andy T. Wood, and at Matt Kirshen. 
and uh, go and get Moshe's book and we will do a bonus story for the Patreon patrons but main episode thank you so much and we will see you next time bye, bye.